Let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 12. This morning we will look at verses 37 through 43, John chapter 12. Please listen to these sobering words of the living God. But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet when he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So read the words of the living God. Father, we thank you that we who are your children, we who are believers, that you in your grace and mercy have opened our eyes to see the truth and the glory of Christ, that we can sing and mean it, that we will rise again, that it is well with our soul because we have a priest standing in your very presence right now, interceding on our behalf. All of our sins have been forgiven. We are yours forever. You did that. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes. And now as we look at this text, would you teach us of who you are, of your, of your grace, which is shown to be grace in contrast with your justice. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As we have been walking through the Gospel of John for these months, uh, it's been my custom on more than one occasion to remind us of who John's audience first was. If you recall, way back at the beginning, we saw that John was writing for, first of all, a Jewish audience. He desperately wanted his fellow Jews to believe that Jesus was the Messiah who was to come. And that by believing in him, they would have eternal life. And he picked the signs, he tells us, the, the miracles that he, that he writes about. He picked them, hoping that his Jewish friends would believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And if you recall, we, uh, we determined that John was probably writing around 85 AD, some 50 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So the Jews, many of them, most of them, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Here, 50 years after the fact, John is trying to get them to see that he is the Messiah. Now imagine if you were one of them. Put yourself in that first century mindset for a moment. And for whatever reason, you get a copy of John's gospel and you're reading it. Remember, so you're a Jew, you know the Old Testament, and you're reading this fellow Jew, John, writing to you, and you're reading this, and, and all the while, as he's talking about miracle after miracle after miracle, you scratch your head and say, why didn't those people believe that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, 50 years later, some of them may have been there. Certainly some of them would have lived through Jesus' death and resurrection and all that he did. And they would have heard the rumors and the stories sort of firsthand. By all means, this would have been the second generation of people who would have heard the stories from their parents. Yeah, there was this guy, Jesus, and there was a lot of people who thought he was the Messiah, but it turns out he wasn't. And, and, and you're reading this thinking, if Jesus really did these things, if he really healed a blind man, if he really healed a man who had been lame for 38 years, if he really turned water into wine, if he truly raised a man from the dead, then why did the Pharisees reject him? Why did the vast majority of the Jews at the time reject him? It's a good question. I asked that question. Do you ask that question? As we read this, thinking, what more evidence would they need? How could they just see these things and say, yeah, but you're not the Messiah? Why? Well, John answers the question for them, and he does it with their own scriptures. He quotes directly from the text that they believe in, Isaiah, and says, this is why the leaders rejected Jesus. This is why the Jews, by and large, rejected Jesus as Messiah. He quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Do you know where this verse is found? He says, this is to fulfill the word of Isaiah. The prophet spoke when he said, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do you know what chapter that is? Isaiah 53. How many of you knew that without looking at your cross-reference? We have two Christians in this group. Okay. Isaiah 53, that, that glorious text of the coming servant of God who's going to give his life on behalf of his people. By his wounds we are healed. He took our iniquity. All of those things. At the beginning of that chapter, sort of an ominous tone, Isaiah begins by saying, who's believed us? Lord, who has believed what we're telling you? And to whom has God's arm been revealed? Well, the first century Jews saw the arm of God as Jesus performed all these miracles, but it was not revealed to them what it all meant. They didn't believe. Isaiah's anticipating their unbelief. But it's not simply a matter of predicting the future. The next verse is even harder. Look what John says here, verse 39. 
For this reason, they could not believe. Let that sink in. John is telling his audience, and now he's telling us, those first century Jews could not believe. Why? Because they were hard-hearted, because they were stupid. I know some of you don't let your kids say that word. We didn't either when our kids were young. But is that what he's saying? Because they're just too foolish? Because they're not intelligent enough to draw a cause and effect relationship between what Jesus did and so on? Because they didn't understand the scripture right? Well, all of that may be part of it, but notice John goes straight to another answer. Why could they not believe? Verse 40, again quoting from Isaiah. Because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they would not see. So we're going to go back and look at the original statement there. This is back in Isaiah chapter 6. Less than two years ago, one of God's greatest gifts to the modern church, Dr. R.C. Sproul, passed on to be with Jesus. You can't, if you've ever seen his video series on the holiness of God, you can't ever read the first few verses of Isaiah 6 again and not see R.C. Sproul teaching this. It is life-transforming. He draws out what's happening here like nobody could possibly do. So if I shift into sprolisms as I go, forgive me, because it's just impressed upon my mind. Oh, what a passage this is. This is chapter 6, verse 1 of Isaiah. We are told it's the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, now don't just jump ahead here. You're Israel or in this case, it's Judah, the southern kingdom, the people of God, the Jewish king is dead. Imagine if, if you're the, the Jewish people, your king has just died. That brings some despair, at least some uncertainty. What's next? Who's our leader going to be? Where are we going? There's going to be a, a, a sobriety about it. In the year of King Uzziah's death, God sa- takes Isaiah and says, I, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So on one hand, there's uncertainty because the king is dead, but Isaiah gets to see the king on his throne. It's going to be okay, Isaiah. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. A king's majesty and his wealth and his power was displayed in the length of his train in that day. So if you were a stronger king over many, many uh, people, large groups of people, if it's a large kingdom, then you had a longer train. Uh, we, we don't see kings like this anymore. The closest thing we get is maybe the bride uh, on a wedding day, but typically we don't add the length of her train for any particular reason. Sometimes they're too long and people trip all over them. We, that's why we can make them shorter. For the king here, it, it, it illustrated his, his power, his wealth, his majesty. This thing filled the entire temple. Imagine it. 
If the, if the temple's this big and Isaiah sees the train filling the whole thing, you see the symbolism there? This is a powerful king. This is the Lord himself on the throne. The entire temple is filled with the train of his robe. Seraphim stood above him, these strange angelic creatures. They had six wings. With two, the, the creatures covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Here we see these angelic creatures who, in the presence of the glory of God, cannot look directly at him. They cover their face. And they cover their feet. We don't know exactly what that means. You can watch Sproul to uh, see his speculation on it, but we don't know for sure. And with two wings, they are flying, and there's a whole bunch of them. And they're crying out to one another, calling out to one another, back and forth, back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not just the temple. But these creatures are saying, no, the entire earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. And they just keep crying out, holy, 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 over and over again, back and forth and back and forth. And the scene is, is, is so great. We, he says that the foundations of the thresholds of the temple trembled as the voices called out. And the temple was full of smoke. Not fog machine, but smoke. It's, it's an ominous scene. It's a terrifying scene. It's a holy scene. Do you remember who John said this is? We just read it in John chapter 12. John said Isaiah saw Jesus. Did you catch that? Back in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, the him in this whole text is Jesus, and he spoke of him. Now we know. Who did Isaiah see seated on the throne? He saw the Son of God. Before the incarnation, before he became a man, the Son of God was sitting on a throne of glory. This will come back to us later on when Jesus himself prays, Restore to me the glory I had before. The Son of God has always been on the throne, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And Isaiah saw him. Now, we're not told that he saw the face that became Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know what he looked like. But we're told that this is the Son of God rather than God the Father seated on the throne. So what is Isaiah's response as he gets this glimpsed into the heavens and sees the Son of God in all of his glory sitting on the throne, Isaiah's response, parents, it's okay for me to say this. Isaiah's response could be translated, I am damned. That's what the word woe means. He's pronouncing a curse of damnation on himself because he sees the, the glory of, of God and he's immediately convinced that he deserves 
God's wrath. Woe. The pronouncement of judgment. Why? It's just because I'm a man of unclean lips. I say things I shouldn't say. It's not simply a matter of using bad words, but as Jesus will go on to say, our words reveal what's in our heart. I'm a corrupt man, he says. And I live among a people of unclean lips. We're all cursed before God. We all have wicked hearts. We all have evil hearts, he says. He says, I'm undone. I'm ruined now that I've gotten a glimpse of the holiness and the glory of God on the throne. My eyes have seen the king, and I am unclean. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Ugh. Think that through. We're going to have a cookout here in a few weeks. Not a barbecue, we're going to have a cookout. Would anybody be willing to let me take a burning coal from the fire and put it on your lips? Imagine what happened to his lips after the seraphim grabbed one of those coals and put it on his lips. Blisters immediately, cauterized. What's God doing here? He's atoning for his sin. That's what he says. Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, Ooh, 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 here I am, send me. Have you ever been to a missionary commissioning ceremony where this has not been preached? Right? This is the standard, the classic missions text when someone is commissioned. I've heard it used many times at general counsel, and it fits, right? God is saying, I need someone to go for me, to go across the world and take the gospel. Who will go? And if the Lord put it on your heart to go in missions, you say the same thing Isaiah did. I'll go. I've seen your glory. You've atoned for my sins. I'll go. But when that happens at our commissioning ceremonies, the people are excited. The missionaries are, are excited. It's a party at, at council. We put on a huge display. Uh, we, we've talked about this before where all the people, who, all the missionaries who are on home assignment that year when there's a general council, for those of you visiting, general council is our, our national gathering of all the alliance official workers. It happens every two years. And on Sunday is the big missions parade. Uh, and, and all the people dress in the garb of the, la- of the nation they're serving in, and they parade through the convention center, and music is being played, and we're singing worship, and it's a wonderful display and anticipation of what's coming when all nations are gathered around the throne. It's, it's beautiful. And, and during that uh, time is when the, the new missionaries are commissioned to go uh, sent out to their, their place of, of service. And we're celebrating, and those folks are eager. I can't wait to get to Africa. I can't wait to get to wherever and preach the gospel so that some can come. And we know some people see great prosperity and fruit in their ministry, and they convert thousands. 
And some people go, and they spend 30 or 40 years with maybe one convert. But they're still hopeful. The Lord can use me to change hearts and to bring people to himself. That is not what Isaiah is commissioned to. We always stop at verse 8. Here am I, send me. Here's what God says in verse 9. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Isaiah, render the hearts of this people insensitive. Literally, it's fat. Render their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. How many of our missionaries do you think would go if that part was preached at their ceremony? All right, thank you for volunteering. We're sending you to the farthest reaches of the world, and here's your message. Go make it so they can't understand what you're teaching. It hurts missionary enrollment when we preach like that. And Isaiah said, Lord, how long? How long do I have to preach that message? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Isaiah, you preach this until the city is destroyed. That's harsh, isn't it? Certainly hard. Why? Why would he do this? Why would God send Isaiah to preach something with the intention that his people would not understand? If you were in the Sunday seminar this morning, you know where this is going. It's wonderful how the Lord has juxtaposed these two studies. This was all set up back at the very beginning of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. Way back at the foundation of the Jewish people. God, you recall, rescued Israel from Egypt with great power. The ten plagues, right? The, the frogs, the blood, the darkness, and then the big one, the death of the firstborn of all the sons of everyone in the land except the Jews who put the blood of the, the lamb on the doorpost. And then he led the people out, and he parted the Red Sea so that the entire nation, two million people, could walk through the, the sea itself on dry ground. Then he collapsed the sea on Pharaoh and all of his armies so that their enemies were destroyed. And he brought the people of Israel out to Sinai, and he made his covenant with them. He said, okay, Israel, I have rescued you. I have shown my power. I've bore you like on eagle's wings here. And now here's the deal. I will bless you. I will prosper you. I will take care of you. I will make you conquer all of your enemies. Everything you touch will be prosperous if you'll obey me. If you disobey me, I will destroy you. 
I'm not going to take the time to read Deuteronomy 28 today. This morning we did it in Sunday, Sunday seminar. Go back and read Deuteronomy 28 this afternoon. It is horrifying what God declares will happen to the Jewish people if they disobey him. If they commit idolatry, if they have other gods than him, if they make graven images, and so on down the list of the Ten Commandments, God says, I will destroy you as a people, and I will leave your land and your city desolate. So with that warning, we would expect the Jewish people to say, no, 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 we will never disobey you. We want the blessing, not the curse, right? Do you know how long the people of Israel obeyed God? Zero. Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments written on the stone as a summary of this promise, this covenant God makes. And while he's up on the mountain, in Exodus 32, we read this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron, that's Moses' brother, their priest, and he said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. See what they just did? Top two commandments, blown just like that. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, make no graven images. The people come to Aaron, the priest, and say, hey, make us a god. For this man, Moses, the man who brought us to the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Aaron says, no, 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 don't you understand? If we do this, God will kill us. No, don't do that. No, I won't. Is that what he said? Aaron said, tear off your gold rings, which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off their gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? So here, they're throwing this big party, and they're bowing down before this golden calf and saying, that's your God. That's the God who brought you out of Egypt. Guess what? God sees everything. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. He sees everything. So here's what God says to Moses. Go down at once for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> I love that. See what God's doing there? Hey, Moses, your people, not my people, your people, you brought them up from Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is our God, O Israel, who brought us up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are obstinate, literally stiff-necked. They can't be led anywhere. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them and make from you a great nation. See what God's doing there? 
Moses, the ink is not even dry on the contract, and they're already violating it. Get down there. Actually, move aside. I'm going to wipe them out. Moses says, please, Lord, don't, which is pretty amazing, because how have the people of Israel treated Moses thus far? Not very well. Moses says, please, Lord, don't. What are all the nations going to think if you brought them out to the wilderness just to destroy them? The nations are going to say, that God is crazy. That God is, 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 is a loose cannon. He's pleading with the Lord not to destroy them. And God says, okay, I won't destroy them yet. But, he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, this is important, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. He says, okay, Moses, I won't destroy them yet. But there's a day coming when I will. For the next 700 plus years, God sends judge, king, priest, prophet after prophet after prophet to these people, warning them if you continue. In your idolatry, if you continue to serve other gods, if you continue not to obey God's law, he will destroy us for hundreds of years. And they'd learn their lesson for a very short time, and then they would grow complacent, and they would go chasing after foreign gods from the nations that surrounded them, and God would bring some little piece of judgment upon them, and send prophets saying, repent or else, repent or else. And they wouldn't repent, and God would give them a little foretaste of punishment again, over and over and over again, until finally God says, I've had enough. He says, Isaiah, this is 700 B.C. Isaiah, you go tell these people the truth of who I am, but they will not respond. God has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes in judicial judgment for their centuries of idolatry. In Exodus 34, which I didn't read right after the golden calf thing, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Remember that scene? And Moses is put in the cleft of the rock and God lets the back part of him go in front of Moses because he says, you can't see my face and live. And as God is displaying his glory, he says, I'm a God of grace and compassion and love, but I'm also a God who punishes sinners to the third and fourth generation. It's who God is. He's a just God and a gracious God. So century after century after century goes by, and Israel will not repent of their sin. So then, the ultimate sin of Israel, God sends his only son 
to live among them, to walk among them, to do all the signs of the Messiah right there in front of them. They can't deny it. They don't even try to deny it. But they don't believe. Why? Because God is judging that generation as the final fulfillment of his wrath against the nation of Israel. Listen to what Jesus himself taught to the Pharisees. Jesus says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Remember, the apostles went all through the nation of Israel. Paul went to the synagogues first before he went to the Gentiles. And what did the Jews do to all of Jesus' servants? They persecuted him. Jesus predicted this. He says, I'm sending you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And here's the, here's the point. So that upon you, first century Jews, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That generation of Jews committed their ultimate act of defiance against God by crucifying God's son, the Messiah. And God's judicial wrath upon them was they couldn't see the truth right in front of their eyes. It's hard. But it's what the word of God says. I'm not going to take the time this morning to walk through Romans 9 through 11. But it would be worth your time to read it sometime because there Paul explains all hope is not lost for Israel. The hardening of their heart came to an end, and now the Jewish people are just like every other nation on earth. They need the gospel, but they're no longer under God's judicial hardening. His wrath is spent. That's why we need to send missionaries to Israel. That's why we need to talk to our Jewish friends down the street and preach Christ to them in hopes that they will be better than first century Israel and come to faith. They can do it by God's grace because God's judgment upon them is over. So back to John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. So with their heads, they're concluding that Jesus is Messiah. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. They were not letting anybody know they believed. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. In verse 43 in the NAS, I don't know why they're not consistent here, but, Paul, uh, but John is clearly using a play on words. Verse 43 literally says, For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of of God. All this talk about glory. Remember last week, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified it. I will glorify it. 
Isaiah sees the glory of God on the throne. And then John says, these rulers who believed in their head that Jesus was the Messiah cared more about the glory of their fellow men than about God's glory. What a horrible place to be. To say, yeah, I'm convinced Jesus is who he says he is, but I care more about what people think of me than what God thinks. It's possible to have mental assent, to actually say in your mind, yep, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He died on the cross. I, I believe all that. It's possible to say those words and believe them, but not have the kind of faith that brings eternal life. Because it's, it's way more than just intellectual assent to a set of propositions. It is a heart that says, I care more about God's glory than what any man thinks of me. I care more about confessing Jesus to the world than I care about anybody's opinion of me. That's saving faith. That's the kind of faith we desperately need and that everybody desperately needs. I know this is hard. It's not my favorite text to preach. It's passages like this that make me want to become a topical preacher <laughs> and preach on having fun with Jesus, making money with Jesus, eating ice cream to the glory of Jesus. But I'm going to close with this from the words of the Apostle Paul. Speaking about Israel and God's hardening of Israel, he says this, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, which he did on the nation of Israel, what if he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why did he tolerate Israel? For all of those centuries of idolatry and unbelief, Paul answers the question. He did this to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. The proper response for us when we read of God's holiness and his justice and his hardening of Israel's heart the proper response for us is to say, Lord, thank you. I'm no better than them. I don't know why you opened my eyes. I don't know why you didn't harden me, but thank you. Thank you for giving me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand so that I could call out to you and be healed, and be saved. That's the proper response. We bow our knees to his holiness and his glory and say, God, you're, you're sovereign. You're powerful. You're just. But you're also merciful and kind and gracious. And for whatever reason, you open my eyes to see. That's the response. Don't let your mind go down too many paths of questions. There are things we just can't answer. 
but we can respond in grace and hope and gratitude. In a few moments, we're going to get a chance once again to declare together that we don't care about the glory of men. We declare about the glory of God, and we're going to sing what we said at the beginning. We're going to sing the creed and our confession out loud that we believe in the triune God and in his saving grace.